We're in a teaching series through Lent in Psalm 23. We are calling it Life Without Lack. It's based on the first verse of Psalm 23, and it's based on a great book by Dallas Willard. Um, for those of you that are new to this, Lent is a 50-day season in the historic church calendar of repentance, and it's done through fasting in order that we could make our hearts ready to hear God. From the first Christians, uh, the church has observed with great devotion the days leading up to Christ's passion and the resurrection of Christ, and it became a custom in the church to prepare for this time of season, uh, or this, prepare for the season through repentance. So part of what we'll be doing through this series is as we're gathering in community groups, we as community groups will be fasting certain things as a group. And the reason why we're doing it as a group is it allows for accountability and it allows for support. And so every week in our community groups, there's a different fasting discipline invitation or challenge or however you want to hear that. For example, last week we fasted worry. I hope that you're killing it right now. Like, just like, yeah, last week I just didn't worry at all. Um, obviously, that's, those are really difficult ways of fasting, and they're, they can kind of seem abstract, but they're really practical once you start to realize how much you worry and how the discipline of committing to not worrying, um, like how that roots into your life. Also, during the series, we as a church are spending, or committing as a church, I hope that you did it this week, I did it this week, and it's been incredible, spending five to ten minutes every single morning meditating on Psalm 23. And just take this verse and you like mull it over in your mind and in your heart and you spend time for five to ten minutes meditating on it. And my hope, our hope, is that you would memorize it. And so maybe a week or two weeks in, you don't have to look at uh, Psalm 23, that you have it in your mind and you're just spending time slowly going through it, allowing it to direct your prayers, allowing it to direct your, your heart, allowing it to direct your day. Dallas Willard says that... Bible memory is more important than a quiet time in the morning because when you memorize the Bible, you get to take quiet time with you throughout the day. So you get to um, not just get to absorb that great moment you have in the morning with God, you get to take that with you throughout the day in, in memory. You get to take Psalm 23 with you wherever you go. And so um, we'll read Psalm 23 right now together. Now, if you have memorized it, go ahead and like close your eyes and recite it with us. I'll lead us through it. Um, if you've not then it's on the screen. You can follow along. We're going to stand. Would you stand with me? Let's read, recite this together. Our hope is that in a few weeks, we don't have to put it on the screen. We just all memorized it. And we'll all be, I mean, that's, that'll be a beautiful thing. And I can retire. I got you guys to memorize a verse of scripture. And I'll, and I'll, I'll be done. Um, I will try to read this at a slower cadence. So follow along with me. Let's read this together. And then I will pray. You guys ready? The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's it, Lord. 
That's what we desire. This psalm, I really believe, is not a prayer. It is a statement of truth. It is something that we are to live in, that we are to get absorbed into the very fabric of our lives, the warp and woof of our lives, down into our very bones. I pray that would be true of this church, that we would see you as our shepherd, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, God, that we would hear your voice, that we would know your voice, and that we would know that you are good, God, and that we would lack nothing. In a world that lacks so much, and everyone's clamoring, and even our lack, how it drives us, I pray that we would be people that are so content in our God that we say we lack nothing. Everything that we have, we have in Christ and His community. Everything we need, we have in Christ and His community. And everything we want, we have in Christ and His community. I pray that would be true about us. Make that true about us. It won't, be, it won't happen through magic, Lord. It will happen as we fix our mind and our heart on you and stay committed to meditating on this verse, meditating on who you are, and living in light of who you are. Make that true of us, Lord. Tonight, would you give me um, strength, clarity of mind and heart to teach these things to this church, this flock? I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, whenever I approach this pulpit, there are a few things that I can safely assume of you, the congregation, when you fill this room. Every time I get up here and teach, I can assume a few things about you. And the thing that I think that tops that short list of things that I can assume about this room is that most people in this room live with a certain level of anxiety. Whether it's an anxiety that lives just under the surface of your life, where you're able to manage it, you're able to manage your anxiety by distracting yourself during the day. And you know you do this. I do this as well. But we also know that even though we manage our anxiety just under the surface of our lives, anything can set us off. A bad email, just even a bad subject line in an email can set us off. A difficult text message can set us off. A hard conversation can trigger us. Even an Instagram post from a, quote, friend can trigger anxiety and spin us out of control. But again, we try to learn how to manage it. And we push it back down with more busyness and more distraction and more consumption. Some of us go to bed distracting ourselves to the second we fall asleep because we cannot handle even a moment of being alone and quiet before God. We can't do it. We know that that anxiety will bubble up and we won't be able to sleep. So we distract ourselves with our phones, whatever, to the very last second we fall asleep sometimes with the phone in our, in our hands. We do this because we, we have underneath our surface this level of anxiety that we don't want to scratch. Or maybe some of us, this, we have a more acute form of anxiety where distraction doesn't really even work anymore. And you need something harder to help you relax. You need something stronger to help you even sleep because anxiety robs us of sleep and rest. And you've moved on to drugs. You've moved on to sex. You moved on to pornography and alcohol just to unwind. Just to relax, you need drugs. Just to unwind, you need sex, pornography, or alcohol just to numb it. And so your anxiety has led you to forms of addiction that seems to compile your problem. And even now, there might even be some sort of knot going on right about here. And you're thinking, whoa, I usually start your sermons off funny. This is not funny. And I want to let you know this is not rare. This feeling of anxiety is not rare. It is not rare for me personally. 
There's no one in this room that's immune to this sort of anxiety that we feel. This is the water that we swim in today. This is water. The anxiety that we feel is the water in which we swim. Anxiety and worry and distraction and stress. This is water. This is what I can safely assume about most people who are in this room who live in this city, that you deal with a level, some sort of level of this. And so a text like this that starts off as, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. We hear these words, and all of us sort of, our souls, I think, kind of lean into these words a bit, are like, what? what? Tell me more. What? How do, you, how do you live this life where you're led beside quiet waters? How in the world do you live this life where you're, you're laying down on green pastures? How in the world do you have this, this sort of life where your soul is refreshed? We want this. See, Psalm 23, especially verses 1 and 2, is like a warm invitation into the incomparably rich and fulfilling life that Jesus, the good shepherd, makes possible. It describes the life that we all desire, a life in which we lack nothing, a life in which we are at rest, a life in which we are completely content before God and in our own skin. And this life doesn't come automatically. See, you know, I'm assuming anxiety in a room full of mostly followers of Jesus. I'm, exu- I'm assuming anxiety in a room full of mostly Christians. So it's not like we believe in Jesus and then boom, I lack nothing. And I have green pastures, quiet waters, refreshed soul. Maybe we've experienced that in like samples, but it's not the meal that we thrive on. It's not the meal that we eat every single day. See, we, 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 we want this kind of life. And so what, how do we, what does it require? How do we live this life that David is talking about? How can David say this? And how do we live this life? What, what is required to experience this kind of life with God? Well, remember, David here is playing around with a very powerful and very biblical metaphor. He is saying, and this is, this is true from uh, throughout Scripture, the Bible plays with this metaphor, that we are sheep and then that God is the good shepherd. It's even carried over into the New Testament where Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. That he is, and last week we read from that picture of Jesus feeding 5,000. He has everyone sit down on green patches of grass and he's feeding them. Like Jesus says, he's, he's showing everyone he's actually the good shepherd. So this metaphor is carried throughout the Bible and it's a rich metaphor. And it's saying, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, David is saying also that he is a sheep and that we are sheep. And then Christ is our shepherd, or God is our shepherd. And so what we said last week was this. What is universal about sheep is that they need a shepherd. What is universal about all sheep is that without a shepherd, sheep will pretty much die. They will die. Um, And in verse 2, David extends this metaphor a bit. He says that the shepherd, this shepherd, makes him lie down in green pastures. This shepherd leads him beside quiet waters. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that, that we have this kind of life, especially in light of the things that I can safely assume about most people in this room, that we all deal with a level of anxiety? Why is it a big deal that we are led beside still quiet waters? Why is it a big deal that we are able to lay down in green pastures? Well, two of the greatest needs that sheep have, two of the greatest needs and I think the metaphor and the parallels is beautiful. The two of the greatest needs that sheep have are green pastures and still water. And here's the irony. They can't get to these necessities by themselves. Sheep don't just don't know how to hunt 
for green pastures. They're not hunting animals. They're like, hey, guys, we need to find green pastures. Everybody follow me. Like, sheep don't do that at all. Um, they don't, they're, they're, they're afraid of water. They're literally afraid of rushing water, and they won't know how to find quiet water or still water. And so they'll drink contaminated water that's been, like, sitting out in a puddle somewhere. That, and, then they'll, and then they'll die. They try. They are hungry for green pastures, sheep. They need to lie down and rest. They are thirsty and long for fresh water, but they can't get them without a shepherd to lead them. Not at least the shepherd, the sheep that David is talking about here, sheep in a harsh and extreme conditions of the Middle East. So how do sheep, like us, find this type of rest? That's the question. David's a shepherd himself. Now, I don't know if you knew that. That's an important part of this psalm. David's a shepherd. And so David is, he's tending sheep and he's caring for sheep. And he starts, and he is also a, a musical artist, so he writes music. So he's out tending his sheep and he writes a song. And he starts to realize that the way he is with these sheep are the way God is to him. What he is to these sheep, God is to him. And he's saying, the Lord is my shepherd the way that I'm a shepherd to these sheep. And the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures the way I, want, I make my sheep lie down in green pastures. And the Lord leads me to quiet, still waters to drink from like I do this sheep. See, what, what David knew about being a shepherd is that sheep will not lie down in green pastures until they are released from all of their fears. They will not lie down. Sheep are animals that are naturally afraid. They won't lie down and rest. They won't drink from a loud rushing river because they're too afraid. Sheep won't rest until they are free from all their fears. So when David says that, that his shepherd makes him lie down in green pastures, it's in the imperfect verb form, meaning this, that the shepherd doesn't force the sheep to lie down. Maybe you've had a hard time with this verse. You're like, he makes me lie down in green pastures? What? I feel like he's telling me what to do. It's in the imperfect a verb form, meaning the shepherd doesn't say, hey, stupid sheep, shut up, lay down right here. That's not what God's doing. Rather, the shepherd creates the environment that dispels all fear so that the sheep can lie down and rest. That's what the shepherd does. The shepherd dispels all fear. And David knew this as a shepherd himself. What he has to do to, to get sheep to lie down what he has to do to get sheep to drink this water, he has to dispel all the fear around the sheep so that they can actually lie down on green grass. They can eat from the green grass, that they can drink from these waters. And the psalm is saying, and what David knows, is that there is no true rest until we are released from all of our fears. What this verse is saying is he makes me lie down in green pastures, that God has released him from all his fears and that he can truly rest. This is why he says in verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. See, if we were to get to the bottom of our anxiety, our worry, our stress, our need for distraction, I think if we were to scratch at these things, we would find underneath those things fear. Under our anxiety is fear. Under our worry is fear. Under our stress is fear. Under our need for distraction is actually fear. Under even most of our anger is fear, fear of not having enough, fear of not being enough, fear of something happening that is out of our control, a loss of a job, a loss of a loved one, a loss of a relationship, a loss, uh, a fear of being found out, a fear of our shame being exposed, a fear of being forgotten, a fear of being insignificant, a fear of pain. And what this fear does, and it drives us to restlessness, 
where we have so much fear that it turns into this, this certain level of anxiety where we're restless and that we need distraction, that we need something to distract us from the fear of not being enough, the fear of something happening that's completely out of our control. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman write this in The Cry of the Soul, their book on the Psalms. They say, different people fear different things with different levels of intensity, but all of us fear what we cannot control. Every, all of us, the, the, kind of the root of our fear is what we cannot control. Fear is our response to uncertainty about our resources in the face of danger. When we are assaulted by a force that overwhelms us and compels us to, and it compels us to face that we are helpless and out of control. Fear is provoked when the threat of danger, physical or relational, exposes our inability to preserve what we most deeply cherish. Fear. The root of our fear is like that we don't have control. And we start to realize that. And it spins us out. Kendrick Lamar has uh, a song on his album, Damn. Have you guys, uh, okay. Edited version always, right? We talked about this last week. Um, and he has a song called Fear. And Kendrick Lamar says that this is his best lyrical writing to date. This is the best song he's ever written lyrically up to this point in his life. And this song, he goes through the steps of fear in his life. And the first verse is when he was young. And the second verse is his fears as a teenager. And the last verses are his fears now. I think this is a great journal exercise, by the way, okay? I, it might have started off as a journal exercise for him. These are my fears when I was young. These are my fears when I was a teenager. These are my fears now. And what's the thread that drives them, that, that, that puts them all together? He says in the first verse that when he was young, he feared his, a strict mother. He had a strict mother and he feared her. In verse 2, he says he, when he was a teenager, he feared dying in the streets of Compton because of the gangs and the police violence. And in verse 3, he says his fears now is losing it all. His fear was losing it all. He's gained a lot of money and a lot of success being a rapper. And what he fears the most is that he will lose it all. And then he even plays around with the book of Job in this part. And he says that he fears God is going to treat him like Job in the Bible. So God, who, you know, God gives Job a ton of blessings only for Job to lose it all in a matter of minutes. And so Kendrick is wrestling with, like, will God treat me like Job? Will I get all of the success and then lose it all in a moment? And all of these fears that he has are actually rooted in his loss of control, what he cannot control. And so when he was young, he, his mother was in control. He was not in control, and he feared her. When he was older, uh, gangs ran his streets in Compton, and, and, and police ran his streets, and he was not in control, so he had fear. And now when he's older, he's thinking, maybe God is really the one in control, but can God be trusted? And will God just take it all away? If he's the one in charge, what if I'm not really in control? What if all the success, God can take it away in a moment? What if he's the one really pulling the strings here and he takes it all away? And what hangs over this entire track is what Kendrick, what will Kendrick do with all these fears that he has? And then at the, in the out, outro of the track, his cousin Carl calls him and leaves him with a long voicemail. And he tells Kendrick to repent and turn to God to trust God, to come back to God's laws, to God's commandments, and that the anxiety that he feels is because he has not turned to God. And I think what Carl's doing, he's kind of like what the psalmist was doing in Psalm 32, that, that he's saying, you need to repent, and God's hand is heavy upon you. Carl is telling Kendrick that the reason that you feel the way you feel is that there's a, like there's a heavy burden of anxiety on you is because you haven't turned to God in repentance. And the song ends 
So the question lingers for the rest of the album. Will Kendrick turn to God? Will, what will Kendrick do with all his fears? And I love this track because I think it really exposes what will we do with our fears? What is the, at the root of our fears? And all of it, all our fears are rooted in a loss of control. When we come to really realize that I'm not the person in control of the world. I'm not even in control of my own world. And what will I do with the fears? When I come to realize that I'm not really in control, what will I do? Now here's the, here's the sinful part of fear. Here's where fear gets really sinful. Sinful part of fear is that fear will drive you. All fear will drive you. Fear will always drive you somewhere. It will, it will either drive you to fight in anger. So some of you guys, when you get fearful, you get really angry because you want to fight. Some of us, when we get fearful, we flee because we want protection. And we just escape inside of ourselves. We get really quiet. And we don't talk to anyone. Or we physically run. We go to a different job, a different city, a different church, a different relationship, whatever. We just run. Or fear will drive us to God. And I agree with Cousin Carl that let your fears drive you to God. If you don't do this, you will let fear have its way with you. And this is what fear does. Fear distorts our perception of ourselves so that we seem weaker than we really are. Fear makes us seem smaller and weaker than we are. And fear also distorts the size of our problems so that they seem stronger and bigger than they are and they become to us undefeatable. So fear makes us feel small and little, like we can't do anything about it, that we're not, we're, we're way weaker than we are, and that the problem that we face is so insurmountable, so big, that we can't defeat it. But I think perhaps most significantly, what fear does is fear distorts our picture of God. Fear makes God seem weak to us. Fear makes God feel uninvolved or uncaring in the midst of our troubles. And we think, you might have thought this in the midst of fear, we think, if God were strong and concerned, he would not let he would not leave us in this mess. Why can't God, if God couldn't do something, why doesn't he do something? And so fear actually reverses reality by making evil seem all-conquering and God seem all-incapable. And fear reverses what re true reality is. Re fear makes us think, well, well what I'm fearing, this evil thing, this thing that might happen, that's all-conquering and God, he's not capable. Well, the opposite is true. God is, is completely capable. See, the opposite of faith is not doubt. Actually, the opposite of faith is anxiety. Ronald Rollheiser says, in Scripture, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but anxiety. To lack faith is not so much to have theoretical doubts about God's existence. It is to be anxious and fearful at a deep level. Now, what does he mean by this? You know, and I, <clears throat> I don't mean to beat up on anxious people. I'm um, I've, I've, told, I've told this church since, like, um, I've looked back on my notes since four months into this church that I'm an anxious person. And I deal with this level of anxiety. So this is probably like, this teaching is like a personal testimony. So I don't mean to beat up on anxious people at all. What does Ronald Rollheiser mean? That the opposite of faith is anxiety. What he's saying is this. We cannot help but be full of anxiety and worry about a lot of stuff in our lives. Our loved ones, our health, our work, our future. We think things like, will my health be okay? Will my son come home safe this evening? Will this person reject me? Will I lose my job? Will I get that promotion? Are my daughter's new friends good for her? Is my, my spouse really being truthful with me? Will God provide for me and for my family? Will I make it in this city? 
There are hardly a moment in our lives that is not clouded by worry of some kind or another. And we're always somewhat anxious. Now, is worrying about these things bad for our faith? Not necessarily. Rollheiser goes on to say this. What opposes faith is not so much worry about this or that particular thing as worry that God has forgotten us. Worry that our names are not written in heaven, that we aren't in good hands, that our lives aren't safe, and that there is every reason to fear and be anxious because at the core of things, there isn't a benevolent, all-powerful goodness who is concerned about us. See, what he's saying is, what he's saying is that there is a kind of anxiety that's the core of unbelief. And it's not that I worry about, will I be able to make it in this city? It's not, it's not that, is my, is my spouse being truthful with me, or will I find a spouse? It's not those things. Those things ha- creep in and out of our lives all the time. The, the, the anxiety that's, that, that, that's a kind of unbelief, what Rollheiser says, is actually when you think that God has forgotten about us. When you, believe, when you start to believe that God has forgotten about you, that turns into a unbelief that is actually what, 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 what doubting is. There is an anxiety that believes that God does not care for me or that God has forgotten me. Like you and I forget a shirt that we own and we dig it out of the bottom of our drawer. Have you ever done that? You open your drawer like, I totally forgot about this shirt. We think that God does that with us. Like, God finds us one day, Dave, I totally forgot you're still there. Like 2017, totally forgot. My bad. I'm here now. How are you? Like, we do that with things. We do that with people. We run into people at church like, oh my gosh, you're still here. I forgot about you. We don't say that, but we, we're saying that in our minds. God does not do that with us. God does not forget about us. There's actually, there's actually a story that Jesus tells a parable where he says, he's a good shepherd like this. I will leave the 99 sheep and go after the one. God is so concerned about us that he's almost irresponsible. Because if you're one of the 99 sheep, you're like, uh, bro, why are you leaving? <laughs> like, we're, Jesus is so concerned about wayward sheep that he's like, okay, you guys, you're okay. I'm going to put you in a pen. You're fine. I'm, I'm leaving you for a minute, and I'm going after the one that is lost. It might seem irresponsible because 99 can be lost, but I care so much about this one. That's, God, it does, this shepherd does not forget you. He does not forget you. If you do not, if you doubt him, he does not doubt you. If you don't believe in him, it's not like he stops believing in you. He goes after you. When you start to think that he does not care about you, that is a lie from the Satan. There's a kind of anxiety. That is the kind of anxiety that is, the core, that is at the core of unbelief. The other kind of anxiety that's, that's at the core of unbelief is that God will not take care of me. There's one thing to say, well, God's forgotten about me. <clears throat> I keep praying, I keep doing this or that, and I th- he's just forgotten about me. That, there, there's, that's wrong. That is not true. But there's another kind of anxiety that we are like, well, he hasn't forgotten about me, but he doesn't care for me. He doesn't care about me. I was with a spiritual mentor recently, and we began chatting. And I asked him how he was doing. Because usually it's like a spiritual director relationship where I talk about what's going on in my life and stuff like that, and he gives me all kinds of really wonderful and beautiful direction. But I was like, how, how are you doing? What's going on with your life and that sort of thing? And he went on to say that a close family member of his has an inoperable tumor. Another family member of his is dealing with such a traumatic situation that they had to live with him and his wife on and off recently. And that the house that they own was recently threatened by wildfires and they had to evacuate. 
And I was like, what? And I was like, how are you doing? What's going on with that? And he said this. He, in, in complete sincerity, he said, and Dave, either God is God and knows how to hold all of this, or he is not, and I have bigger problems than these. I was like, wait, what? Okay. I need to write, first of all, I need to write this down. Second of all, I literally did. I, just, I wrote it down. And he said, either the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not lack, or he's not, and in which case I have bigger questions to deal with. There is a kind of anxiety that we're like, God doesn't take care of me. That is, if that's true, you have way bigger problems than your problems. There is a God, and if he is God, he knows how to hold it all together. There is a God, and if he is a good shepherd, he knows what he's doing, and you can say, I shall not lack, or he's not, in which case you have way bigger questions to deal with than that. And what this friend of mine has learned, learned, I say learned, is the care of the good shepherd to rest in green pastures and be led beside quiet waters, even though he's in the midst of the darkest valley. That's the lesson that we must learn. He has learned the secret to rest because he has come to know the good shepherd. And this is a learned secret. I think we start, we think that Christianity is like magic. We show up, there's a wave of some sort of wand, it's usually a guitar, you know, like, you know, whatever. It's like worship, like zap, and bam, I'm converted, I'm changed. It's like this thing, this like thing happened, and I'm like completely, I won't worry, I won't have to be anxious about it. But it's actually something that you actually have to learn. These things help. Like, when we're at church, we're gathered together, we're worshiping. These things help so much, but it's something that we must carry into our day. Look what the Apostle Paul says. He says in Philippians, don't, do not be anxious, anxious about anything. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, do not be anxious about anything. God bless you. You know, whatever. Be gone. Like, he doesn't do, he doesn't do that. You're like, oh, okay, what do I do with that? He, he, th- th- it goes on. But... In every situation, meaning in every situation that you feel anxious, right? That would be the context. In every situation that you start to feel anxiety, by prayer and petition, with gratitude, with thanksgiving. That's a huge part. When we go through anxiety, gratitude is the last thing on our mind. We usually do it with like, we usually say, okay, I will pray, but with bitterness (laughs) and resentment, I will present my request to God. We're like, God, why me? Why all this stuff to me? Always me. That's what we do, right? Like, you can do anything. Why do you let this happen? This, but with, with gratitude. How do we do that? With an, uh, by prayer and petition, with gratitude, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, when the scriptures say, do not be anxious, it's, that's a moral command. It's not a pep talk. Paul's not like patting us on the back, hey, don't be anxious, bro got it, go. He's not giving you a pep talk. It's like, it's like when the Bible says don't commit adultery. That's not a pep talk, that's a command. Don't commit adultery. You're like, okay. Same breath, right? Same sort of spirit. Don't be anxious. Now, this one's a hard one, though. This one's a hard one, but it can be learned. And I say it's learned because it's, it has to be actually taken on, and I think it's learned in a, 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 a couple of ways outlined here. The first is this, what St. Ignatius called the prayer of indifference. You and I start to pray, and we, have to, we should pray the prayer of indifference. As we submit our request to God, it should be until we get to a place of indifference. That's what I mean by that. I know that sounds bad at first, but let me explain. St. Ignatius referred to the state of submitting all our requests 
and all our struggles to God in honest prayer and ending with a rugged obedience to the will of God no matter what the outcome. Until we have a state of indifference. And that does, indifference here does not mean apathy or disinterest. But it, what it means is that you become, through prayer, indifferent to anything but the will of God. And so when you present your request to God, you do so in a way, and until you got to a place where you're like, I just want your will. I'm indifferent to any outcome outside of your will. So I'm submitting my request to you, God, about this huge life thing. I'm committed to my request to you about a relational thing. I'm submitting my request to you about this or that. And I'm going to pray with thanksgiving and gratitude until my heart says, I'm indifferent to anything but God's will. This is what he's saying. And he says, Ignatius says, this is true freedom. This is true spiritual freedom. If we're truly free, he argued, we wouldn't worry about whether we are healthy or sick, rich or poor, live a long life or a short one. We would place our lives in God's hands and trust him for the outcome. But this is easier preached than done, right? Like, this preaches right now. You're like, oh, come on, preach. Or maybe you're saying, well, don't preach that. That's hard. And either way, it's like it it works for a sermon. It works even for a a council. It, It works for like, it's easier said than done. But this is the, in big things in life, in small things in life, this is, this is what we need to be doing. T- tomorrow, my, my wife and I are making an offer on a home in the city. We, I told you last week we're looking to put a place in. We don't get too excited. There's a punchline coming. <laughs> making an offer on a home in San Francisco is no small emotional thing. Um, real estate in San Francisco is like just a series of rejections. I've heard it likened to dating in San Francisco, just saying. That's what I've heard it likened to. Um, we really like this home, though. Really, really like this home. We can see ourselves living there and going, growing there and doing ministry out of it and truly enjoying this home for a very long time, growing old there, all this stuff. And so yesterday, Ash and I walked around the neighborhood that this house is in, and we prayed until we got to a place of indifference. And it took a long time. It took over a mile of walking, walking around the neighborhood. <laughs> we had our little phone app thing. It was on our watches. We are like... Like buzzes a mile, we're like, okay, I don't know if we're there yet. Like we had, we had to just keep praying and reminding ourselves of God's goodness and how God's led us, and to a place where like we're completely indifferent to the outcome of this home. We can both confidently say that God has led us up, led us up to this point, and that we trust that no matter what happens when we make the offer, we will trust Him still, and we are indifferent. Kinda, I, I would put an asterisk over it. <laughs> Kinda. I was indifferent then. At that moment, we left. I'm like, I want your will, God. And by that night, I had to do this all over again. The today, I had to do it. Like tonight, I get home, I have to do it again. Tomorrow, when we make the offer, I'll do it all over again. This, this is this is the learned part. If I could just, if I just, like, I can just be really indifferent. Like, I don't really care. I don't care where we live. I don't care what happens. I don't care what. I can really, truly be indifferent to where I don't care. But the prayer of indifference is different. The prayer of indifference is, I just want your will, God. I know that you have led us, and I know that you will lead us still. I know they have plans for us, and I know those plans ultimately will end in good. Even though we go through the valley of shadow of death, even though we like die in San Francisco, we never get a house or whatever, I know your plans are good, and I trust you. And this takes work, and it's hard. But according to Paul, it's the antidote for anxiety, and it can be learned. It's the way that we go... Be anxious for nothing, but with prayer and petition, with gratitude. We had, a, we had to start, we, Ash and I, before we see any open house, we start with a prayer of gratitude. Just so our hearts are right, because honestly, it, you can get really bitter living in San Francisco. 
You, you, I, well, this is usually what I'll say in my flesh. I'll say, God, why'd you call me the most expensive city in America? <laughs> why? I mean, I, in Bakersfield, like, I could have owned all the land. <laughs> like, why here? Like, I, this is insane. I can start doing that in my flesh. I start doing that sort of thing. The gratitude just, like, shifts my heart, shifts Ashley's heart to where, like, God, we thank you for what you're doing, what you've done. Like, this sort of thing that you have to do all the time. This, this is the thing I want you to know. This stuff does not happen automatically. You must discipline yourself. This is why we're, as community groups, going through a fasting. Because this doesn't just happen automatically. You must discipline yourself to think this way. I want, I want the heart of that spiritual mentor that I have. I want, the, I want that heart, but I know I won't get there until I, I start training my mind and my heart in a godly way. You won't get there either. You might think, I, will, I would never think to go to something that I really want and just pray until I'm indifferent about it. Well, me neither until this happened. And I'm learning too. The second way this is learned is by learning that prayer is a focus upon God, not upon ourselves. See, this one's, this one's really important. Write this one down, especially when you have heartbreak. This, one, this might be the prayer we're praying on on Tuesday, right here, this one. We all have moments of chaos and crisis in our lives. I mean, stuff even way more serious than buying a silly house in San Francisco. Like, you've experienced loss and death and sickness, disappointment, hurt, loneliness, hatred, jealousy, obsession, fear. When these things come into our lives, we often find ourselves overwhelmed with darkness. And what do we do about it? When we're just completely, darkness has overcome us, like waves on an ocean, like we're just completely overwhelmed what do we do? Now, the simple answer is to pray. Of course, the answer is to pray. But I think that can be a little over, overly simplistic because when we go to pray, often during these times, I don't know if you're, if you're with me here, but often, if you've ever prayed when you're under extreme hurt or loneliness or disappointment or jealousy or hatred or obsession or fear, when you go to pray during these times, oftentimes there is no relief. And oftentimes when you pray, you end up more depressed and self-preoccupied than before you started praying. Anyone with me? Anyone ever experienced that? Often we end up sucking God into our obsession rather than opening our obsession to God. We like suck him into what we're going through. And when we pray while we're hurting, I've often found in my own life, oftentimes I'm just swirling myself into more and more self-pity and more and more self-obsession, recalling all the things I did wrong or the things that were done wrong to me. And then what happens in prayers, I give into more panic and more fear and more chaos and more bitterness and more resentment than I did before I started praying. Why does this happen? And I think the answer is that I and we are praying incorrectly. Prayer is to focus upon God, not upon ourselves. So the problem is when, I, when we pray when we're hurting or obsessed, we're only able to think about one thing, and that's the object of our hurt and our loss. And so that's all we obsess about in prayer. And all of our concentration becomes depressive and it spirals us down. It chokes us out emotionally. But that is not the point of prayer. What we must do, and this is learned, and it's extremely hard and difficult, but it's learned, is to focus upon God in prayer. A lot of times we focus on ourselves in prayer. We think about all the things we want or we don't have and we focus on ourselves and it swirls us out. We must fix our mind upon God, the great truth of God, or some great mystery or truth about Christ in his life to fix our mind. Maybe it's fixing your mind on your favorite gospel story in the Bible and meditating on that. 
It could be Jesus feeding the 5,000 we talked about last week. It could be Jesus uh, when, when, when that woman that was been bleeding for 12 years touches his cloak and Jesus is like, oh, power just came out for me. He turns around, the, the lady like, oh, and she like runs away and he pulls her up like, wait, wait, wait. I want you to know that your faith has made you well. It could be the little girl that died and she was completely dead and Jesus says, Talitha kum to him, like little girl arise and she wakes up from the dead. And the first thing he says is, get this girl a meal. Like whatever it is, you just fix your mind on it, some mystery of Christ, and go down deep. And, and what happens when you do this? I, this is what happens. When we do this, you will have a better chance of breaking your obsession. You will experience God slowly but gently. And there will be a widening again of the scope of your heart and your mind. Your mind will start opening up to who God is and the possibilities that are in Christ. And then you will come to an emotional loosening, even freeing. You will feel like even in your very anxious spirit, it to become sort of broken up and loosened. But the more and more and more that you obsess before God and you wind God up into your obsession, it won't happen. You must train your mind to focus on God. That is the, that is the, the great call of prayer, to focus your mind on God. I've often thought long uh, and uh, long and hard about our fear, about anxiety, about restlessness, and how all of this stuff is really universal. Everyone in this room wrestles with some level of fear and anxiety and restlessness, some longing. We all wrestle with this, and I, when I, one of the privileges I have about coming and standing in front of you all every single, almost every week, is that I know there's certain things that are universal that I can tap into. And the main thing, I think, one of the main things is that this, there's this universal longing. And we all feel this longing. We all feel this anxiety. We all feel this restlessness. And I think all of us long for relief. St. Augustine meditated on this reality as well. And how every single human soul wrestles with this. And it led him to write this. He wrote, Man is one of your creatures, Lord, and his instinct is to praise you. He bears about him the mark of death, the sign of his own sin, to remind him that you thwart the proud. But still, he is part of your creation. He wishes to praise you. The thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you. Because you made us for yourself and our hearts, are, our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. What, what Augustine said, what he's saying, is that God, there's a great conspiracy of God. And he places in every single soul a restlessness. He places in every single soul an anxiety that is really a roadmap back to him. Every single human heart has in it hardwired a restlessness that will not find any peace until it finds God. And then when it does, it like latches onto that and like that is peace. So what will you do with your fears? Will you allow the good shepherd to dispel your fears? Will you allow your fears and your deep anxieties and your longing and your restlessness to lead you to the place where you find rest for your souls, the good shepherd. This is my prayer for you.